News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. In a few minutes, we're going to be getting an update on what is happening in Saskatchewan right now with the nationwide manhunt that is going on. So let's just back it up here for a second and recap for you everything that has happened because it was startling to see these headlines on a Sunday of a long weekend. What is going on there? So the province itself, I mean, you can as you can imagine, they are reeling after one of the, what's considered to be at this point one of the worst mass killings in recent history here. It was two villages northeast of Saskatoon on Sunday where we started to get the news about this. And what we know at this hour is that at least 10 people are dead and 15 have been injured. And this as a result of it seems like a, a spree of stabbings that happened in 13 different locations, uh, two different areas that they know of right now. It is the James Smith Cree Nation area and the Weldon, Saskatchewan area where this happened. So there is a province-wide manhunt that is going on. And in fact, it has also uh, been kind of tipped over into Alberta as well, where police there remain on alert. Waiting for an update from Saskatchewan RCMP on this. But right now, let's get an update on what has been happening, what we know about the last 24 hours. Joining us now is Troy Charles with Global News for more on this. Troy, thank you for being here. Appreciate it, Timmy. Thanks for having me on. What is it like right now? Where are you and what has been happening there? So we are right now in Melfort, um, just a bit uh, northeast, um, about a few 20-minute drive from the uh, James Smith Cree Nation. Not a lot happening right now so far in the uh, early morning hours, but definitely going to be getting into things later today. And uh, obviously a lot went down yesterday. It was quite a busy day as um, the RCMP, they did confirm the 10 deaths on uh, James Smith Cree Nation with 13, with people dying in, sorry, in 13 different locations after the two men went on the stabbing spree. In total, around around 25 um, injured, including the 10 that passed away, with 15 others taken to hospital. Wow. What, how did this unfold, Troy? Can you give us an idea? Look, when did the first reports come in? How has the community responded? Yeah, so it's just about over 24 hours ago. The first calls came in around 5.40 a.m. Sunday morning to the uh, Saskatchewan RCMP reporting the stabbing incidents on James Cree First Nation. And then after that, the calls just kind of kept on coming in on additional stabbings, different locations around the community. Um and then around 7, just after 7 a.m., the Sask RCMP, they sent out the first dangerous persons alert, which went out to the James Smith Cree Nation and the surrounding communities, warning them of, you know, what was taking place. An hour after that, the dangerous person alert was extended to the entire province of Saskatchewan. That was after investigators um, discovered that the two suspects were then traveling in a vehicle. So that's when the, uh, the rest of the province received the, uh, the warning. Later in the afternoon, around 11.30, it was extended into Manitoba and Alberta to, uh, to have their RCMP extend the dangerous persons alert. And then the fifth update, which was the last one, came in just after noon Sunday. And that was to report that the suspects had been seen in Regina, which is about 300 kilometers south of James Smith Cree Nation, about a three-hour drive. They were spotted on, uh, in our Cole Avenue in Regina, uh, in the uh, black Nissan Rogue that 
police um, had information that they were driving in there. And as of now, they're still not sure if they're in that vehicle or, or where they are. That's the big question still is this is still right. an ongoing manhunt. So they were last seen in Regina then. It was a busy day in Regina too, wasn't it? Like there was a sold out football game going on. Yeah, it was quite a uh, delicate situation to navigate for sure with a sold out Labor Day Classic at Mosaic Stadium. And, you know, with these alerts coming in, asking people, suggesting people to shelter in place while you have 25, 30,000 people all heading to a football game. So the uh, local RCMPs and Regina police, they did um, beef up their presence around the uh, around the arena. But, yeah, it's definitely it was definitely uh, quite, quite the day for sure. I can imagine. And what has it been like uh, in the community there, Troy? Are, are people afraid? What have they been saying? Yeah, I mean, we've just so far been here, just got in last night, people at the hotel obviously talking about it, you know, asking, trying to get updates, have these, have these two suspects been found? Like I said, the fact that this manhunt is ongoing, it, there's kind of just that overriding uneasiness and not really being able to kind of put that fear aside and focus on, you know, what happened in this community and trying to trying to put those pieces back together. Um, James Smith, Cree Nation, they did declare a state of emergency yesterday. The population is around 1,500 on reserve there, and they've set up a few emergency operations centers um, to support the communities. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's definitely it's definitely very, very hard times. And like I said, this is an ongoing manhunt, and everyone is just hoping this comes to an end as soon as possible. Sounds like it, yes. Okay, thank you so much for that update, Troy. Yeah, appreciate it. Take care. Yeah, thanks very much for your time. That's Troy Charles, Global News, Saskatchewan, uh, giving us the latest on that situation. And as you can imagine, yes, it's incredibly tense there. As we, the last information that we have from police is that these two suspects were spotted in the Regina area, but that was yesterday afternoon. So there are still a lot of questions. Once again, the vehicle, though, that at that time they were spotted in, that at that time police believe they were driving as a black Nissan Rogue, Saskatchewan license plates 119MPI. But an update from police is what everybody is waiting for at this hour. Uh, The police in Alberta have been notified. Obviously, police in Saskatchewan very much on alert. We know uh, the Global News has learned that the RCMP in British Columbia have not been asked to help out yet. uh, But, you know, more information on that also forthcoming here. So once again, waiting for, you know, more news about what is happening. But the manhunt remains in effect. It is a dangerous person alert that is going on after at least 10 people were killed in 13 different locations, 15 others injured. And this is a result of a stabbing spree in Saskatchewan in the communities of Weldon and the James Smith Cree Nation. We will be closely following this story, so keep it tuned in here for the very latest. This is Mornings with Simi. Have you been following what's been happening in Pakistan in the news? The floods there are absolutely devastating. Record monsoon rains, melting glaciers in the northern part of that country have brought floods that have affected tens of millions of people. And right now, the death toll stands, they say, at at least 1,500 killed, and they do expect that number to go up. How can we help? Well, joining us now is Ali Najaf, who's a Vancouver resident who originally immigrated from Pakistan and is here to talk more about that. Ali, thank you so much for being here. 
thank you so much for the opportunity to speak about floods in Pakistan. Uh, Ali, I understand that you have a lot of family members back in Pakistan. Have you been able to check in with them? Yeah, I've been constantly in touch with them about the situation right back home. It's like very sad of, of what's happening back home. And especially, you know, when I'm away from home, it's very hard to see that I'm not able to help as much as I can. Okay, and what are they telling you? How are conditions there in, in where they are? I would say it's very hard to put that uh, into words. The situation is very bad. Currently, almost two-thirds of the country is under floods. A lot of people have lost their homes, schools, hospitals. And it's like almost 33 million people who are without shelter right now in Pakistan. And do you feel like, are, are people paying attention to this, Ali? Is it tough, do you think, to bring attention to the story? Uh, I would say there's need of to raise a lot of awareness. There's not that much international media coverage of what is happening back in Pakistan. So we need to raise more awareness of like how it is happening. Consider that it's almost the size of Canadian population that is currently displaced in Pakistan right now. And are they being? Are people being looked after? Is it chaotic there for people, or are they able to find some shelter? Uh, I would say, as of now, the government is trying their best to put up as much shelter as possible, trying to move people from like floods area to like safe areas. But consider the impact. It's a very big population that is currently displaced. So it's taking a lot of time and resources to move them. And so what have you heard from your family? Have they had to leave home? Are they displaced? So we are lucky enough that the flood hasn't uh, reached our area yet. But a lot of my friends, like, they have to move to different places. Mm, that is not a good situation. What do they need right now? So how do you think we can help? So as of now, I would say we need to raise a lot of awareness about floods in Pakistan and any kind of support or help would be appreciative. Uh, but one thing I really want to highlight is that I really recommend all my Canadian friends and peers to check in with people with roots in Pakistan, just to say, like, ask them, like, how situation is back home. People are going through, like, a lot of mental stress, so any kind of moral support is greatly appreciated. Yeah, is it frustrating for you then to say, hey, where are the headlines here? Where, where is the news about this? Yeah, it's very sad to see that there's not much awareness about floods in Pakistan over here in Canada. Hmm, okay, so is there any kind of organization here that is that is helping out that Canadians can check out? Yeah, currently Islamic Relief Canada is a national charity organization and they are doing a very big uh, work on the ground in Pakistan. And if people want to donate in any way, I recommend them relating to that organization. Okay, has something like this ever happened in Pakistan before? I know this is the highest ever flood that came in Pakistan, like the monsoon. Uh, rains has break the like record of history. Like this is the first time that the whole con- two third of the country is under floods. So this is just the beginning, then, though, isn't it, Ali? Right, because the flooding is one thing, but then what comes afterwards? It, there's a lot that's going to have to be dealt with here. Yeah, of course, it's going to take at least eight to ten years to like rebuild everything of what has happened. Uh, especially, you know, like a lot of those people rely on agriculture land and agriculture uh, fields and stuff. And that all got devastated. It will take years for the plants to grow and reap the flu fruit in Pakistan. So there's an impact that will go for years to come. And I understand that the government has, they're trying to even mitigate it, right? They're, they're doing some, some flooding in some areas on purpose to prevent some bigger flooding in the more populated areas. So this is an ongoing threat. It hasn't, sounds like it's not even getting better yet. Yep, yeah, it has not stopped yet. Like the floods, 
floods are they moving through like different parts of the country there's a lot of new parts that become high alert every day that is a chance of flooding there and the rain has not stopped yet so there's a it's an ongoing crisis it hasn't even stopped yet okay so once again ali what can we do to help i would say is to a raise awareness check on your peers uh, from pakistan who are here in canada and if possible please donate as much as you can all right ali thank you so much for your time this morning and listen best of luck to your family thank you so much have a good day that's ali najaf is a vancouver resident originally from pakistan his family is still all back there and very worried as there have been just record level flooding that doesn't seem to really doesn't seem to be able to accurately describe what is happening there because it is flood hit in the worst way possible. You're talking monsoon rains, the likes of which they have not seen before, melting glaciers in the northern mountains of that country and floods that have now affected about 33 million people. About 1,500 people have been killed and they say that number is expected to go up as the flooding hasn't really Um, you know, hasn't really gone back yet. It still continues to rise. In fact, authorities in that country have actually strategically breached the country's largest freshwater lake. And they did this just yesterday. So they deliberately displaced up to 100,000 people from their homes, but they did it so that they could save some of the more densely populated areas from floodwater that had been rising. So this is the kind of situation that they are facing right now. And you know what? you would be forgiven if you thought, how have I not heard about this? Because you take a cursory look at some of the headlines from you know, different uh, media websites out there or, or newspapers, and it, it is not really on the front pages right now. And yet it is just an unfolding disaster in that country. This is Mornings with Simi. Joining us now is Dr. Scott Blanford, who's an assistant professor and program coordinator of policing and public safety at Wilfrid Laurier University, uh, joins us now to talk more about this. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Good morning. How are you? You have been focusing on policing and talking about this issue as well. So let's talk about that, because I know you've been getting a lot of attention for your work recently. What have you been working on? Well, I've been looking at the the legislation that's been coming from the government regards to handgun bans and firearms legislation and such, and whether it's actually having an impact upon the usage of firearms in criminal activities. Right. Now, this is a huge issue for us here in BC, right? Because we talk about the gang situation that we have out here and illegal handguns that we believe to be involved. So from what you've looked at, how does this happen? The majority of handguns that are involved in crime in Canada are generally coming in from offshore, generally the United States. And the the size of the border between Canada and the United States makes it a very porous border in that it's very difficult to to manage or control or police the amount of firearms that are being smuggled into the country. In previous days in my early career in policing, the vast majority of firearms that were involved in crime were quite often modified long guns, so sawed-off shotguns, sawed-off single-shot rifles. But that's changed over the years as handguns have become more and more uh, prevalent in crime. And the vast majority of them are actually manufactured handguns that are being smuggled into the country through various means, generally not in large quantities. You you think of shipping containers of guns coming into the country. That's not the case. It's it's the the drib and the drab of handguns coming in three, five, ten at a time at some of those very porous areas within the country. And then they're sold for very high profit margins 
on the black market. Right. So how is this still happening, though? Like, we wonder, we get all these politicians talking about this. We seem to know this is a problem, Dr. Blanford. How are we powerless to really make a dent in this? Well, part of it is just the sheer size of the borders and and trying to patrol that vast expanse of of open space. Not all handguns are coming through at your regular border checkpoints. The other problem is, is it's just it's a it's a problem of scope in that a, a response in legislation would then require additional funding filtering down to police forces and to the border uh, patrol officers. And that's not really happening. So it's a case of where there's just, uh, you know, this idealistic approach to it by creating this legislation that it somehow magically is going to uh, transform itself into actual seizure and reduction of the use of handguns, and that's not the case. It requires a very synergistic approach with all facets of, of enforcement and government working together and collaboratively to help stem the, the tide of these handguns coming in. Okay, do you know of any jurisdiction, though, that has been able to work in that synergistic fashion to make a dent in this problem? Like, does any country able to do this? No, I, I would suggest no. <laughs> yeah. it, it's 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 the old uh, you know the analogy of, of putting your your finger in the dike and hoping to hold back the, the flood. Uh, when one enforcement technology or strategy is used, uh, the criminals very quickly adapt to it, and it's always a case of playing catch up to the, the latest uh, techniques and tactics used by by criminals to smuggle these handguns into the the country. Okay, so if it's never been done before, can Canada realistically, can we realistically expect that we're going to make a dent in this when we have this country right next door where handguns just seem to continue to proliferate? Yeah, you know, I read a stat the other day that there's uh, approximately 400 million handguns in the United States, which is more than the population of the United States. And being next door, as you say, to that uh, really presents challenges. But that doesn't mean we, we simply throw in the towel and give up. We continue to work uh, through the various enforcement agencies, through government levels, to make sure that we are supporting them through funding, through resources, that the legislation is is realistic and is consistent with the problem, and that the the judgments and the, the sentences handed down for uh, the use of firearms are consistent and really uh, you know demonstrate the community's commitment to putting an end to this. Yeah, you mentioned something interesting there, though. It has to be that there's a I guess to use that phrase, like, does the punishment have to fit the crime here? Like, do we need to really crack down in the justice system on issues that have to do with illegal handguns to maybe set that example? Absolutely. Uh, Again, early in my policing career, uh, when there were multiple charges against a person, quite often the firearms offenses were the ones that were dealt away with in order to gain a guilty plea. That has to stop. There has to be a, a concentrated effort to ensure that penalties are... Uh, are given that are consistent with the the threat that it presents to society, not just on the individual, but the the common good, and that that again requires uh, you know that synergistic approach to it with the the courts working in liaison with the enforcement agencies. Right, but I don't see an appetite like I see an appetite for this from the Canadian public, Doctor Blanford. But I'm not sure I see that from the people who are in charge who have to make all the decisions. Do you? Well, you know, there's an old saying that uh, politics is is simply the art of delaying a decision until it's no longer important. And (laughs) it's a very complex issue, and there's there's always competing interests at the political level. There's not just the the crime aspects, but there's also the social aspects they have to address, the security of the country. So it's one of those 
uh, items that gets thrown into the mix and it, it, it gets the, you know, I, I like to call it the flavor of the month, and then it's forgotten about as they move on to some other issue. And there's not a consistent uh, integrated approach to how it's going to be dealt with as a long-term problem. Is that because perhaps it doesn't, it's not something perhaps that the entire country thinks about? It is something that a couple of areas think about. Like we talk about it here in BC because of the amount of, you know, shootings that we have seen and had happen here. Maybe they think about it in Toronto. Is that about it? Yeah, I would suggest that the, the major urban centers uh, have different approaches. The the thought process of someone in Vancouver who's exposed to this type of crime will be different from a a rural farmer in Alberta or a uh, person living in Northern Ontario, they'll have a different aspect on guns and they'll look at it as, well, I'm a lawful owner. I've completed all the proper uh, steps that I have to, to be licensed. I've undergone the background checks and such. Uh, So I don't see it as a problem. Whereas in downtown Toronto or downtown Vancouver, it's a completely different culture and it's a different uh, type of gun that they're dealing with. These are the illegal firearms. Right. That's a good point, though. So, and then do you think Canadians even understand the difference between there? Or do, or do you think it's all guns that they think are the problem? It would depend on where you live. It would mm. depend on how, how you're raised, what the culture is, uh, what your view of, of firearms use is for. Someone who's using, as I said, a rural farmer using a firearm for pest deterrence would have a completely different perception than someone who's living in downtown Vancouver who feels possibly the need to carry a firearm for protection. So it's very much shaped, and and that's one of the challenges of Canada being so large and so diverse is that you're going to have these divergent opinions. Yeah, so when you can see the impact, right, that illegal handguns are having or guns that are smuggled into this country, then do you see, like, what is it that you are curious about in terms of your study? What are the next steps that you want to take? Well, I'd like to see how the government can implement a long-term strategy to address uh, the illegal flow of firearms into the country, not just through legislation that impacts the legal gun owners, because those people, because of the way the the system is structured, uh, they're subject to possible criminal record checks on a daily basis. Any involvement that they have with police could raise a flag that could lead to a record check, which could revoke their license. And many of these people have large sums of money invested in their collections that they use for for sport shooting and such. Uh, so I would suggest that those people are probably some of the most law-abiding citizens. Yeah. So the legislation seems to be targeted towards them and doesn't really address the root cause of the problem, which is the influx of these firearms into Canada. So I'd like to see a long-term uh, strategy on how to address the the flow of firearms into the country and how they're going to deal with the sentencing uh, of, of the people that are caught doing this and, and what strategies they're going to put into stop the flow before it even reaches the border. Yeah, those that are all... would involve, sorry, that would involve integration with uh, offshore and, and international agencies. That, I think that is something that a lot of us here in BC in particular would like to see. Uh, listen, Dr. Bladford, thank you for your time. Thank you for your patience. I appreciate that this morning. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. The community of hope has a very special place in BC. I mean, you pretty much have to go through it if you're heading to other parts of our province. And if you do, you probably have stopped to eat somewhere in that lovely little town. I know growing up for me, it was a ritual that we went to Dairy Queen in hope whenever we went camping and through the interior. It's a beautiful little community, but then it also has some great movie history. As a kid, I remember sitting down to watch for the very first time the hot, hot movie, First 
blood. It was huge. But we weren't watching it because we loved Sylvester Stallone or this movie was supposed to be a big hit. We were watching it at my house because, hey, this was filmed right here in BC, particularly around Hope, and we wanted to see, could we spot the locations? Well, you know what? It's been very significant for the town of Hope, too. In fact, they're celebrating a very important milestone when it comes to the movie First Blood. Brian McKinney joins us now, team lead at the Hope Cascades and Canyons Visitor Center and Museum. Good morning, Brian. Oh, good morning, Timmy. How are you? I am good, thank you. So tell me, how significant was the movie First Blood for Hope? Oh, man. I mean, it, you know, as you know, it kicked off the, the movie industry. as We know it in the province of British Columbia now, a $3 billion a year industry. And, you know, we argue, I argue with my, my, my Vancouver film buddies all the time. You know, we are the original Hollywood North. And uh, we are what uh, what kicked it all off. And, you know, it's 40 years later, well, 41 years later, the, the last person wrapped up. They uh, they wrapped up filming in uh, December of 1981. And uh, it's 41 years ago that, that they wrapped up and, and, uh, and we celebrate, uh, well, we celebrate the release of the movie. And the, it was released to an international audience in October of 1982. So um, this uh, this October is gonna it's going to be 40 years, and we celebrate every five years. And over 15,000 fans come to our community every year because this is where their favorite Sylvester Stallone action movie was shot. <laughs> I love that. So how does one come to hope to celebrate this event, and what's going on for the 40th anniversary? Oh man, your producer said I only had about four minutes, but there's so much going on. It's unbelievable. I can sum it up very quickly. It's just. It, it's going to be a it's going to be a four day event. It's going to be the uh, Thanksgiving weekend, and everything can be found right off our portal, Simi, on our first on our uh, Ramble First Blood Tourism Facebook page. But we're kicking it off on the Friday of the long weekend. We're going to be doing a walking tour to all those favorite filming locations that you talked about. We're doing a we're doing two kickoff parties on the Friday night. We've got great people coming into town for it. We've got members of Brian Dennehy's family that are going to be taking part during the weekend for a special ceremony. We've got Patrick Stack, who's a great actor. He played Lieutenant Clinton Morgan in the movie. He'll be here to sign autographs. The bad guy, the BC commander, Stephen Chang, will be here to sign autographs. Deepmar Pohl, he's a great, this guy's a cool dude. He uh, created the knife that was used in Last Blood, that's the latest movie in the Rambo franchise. Dietmar is going to be here all weekend signing autographs. And your guy, our guy, our favorite fan, our biggest First Blood fan, Mark Madriga, at his <laughs> show. He's, he's agreed. He, the contract has been signed. He's agreed to take part in a Rambo karaoke challenge. No, he hasn't. With fans. It, it's already been signed. He can't back out. But Mark's been a great supporter of everything that we do in our community. He's a huge fan of the movie and a huge fan of Hope. And, of course, what would a weekend be like this without a Rambo lookalike contest? So it's going to be great. It starts off on the Friday and it ends on the Monday. And uh, it's just, if you're a fan of this movie, Cindy, you're going to want to be in this community. There's no question about it. No kidding. It sounds like such a great time. Do, do we even know, Brian, like how did that movie, how did Hope come to be chosen as to where this movie was filmed? Well, it's funny, you know, the the, uh, the exact same reason so many people come to our community to take part in our our natural backdrop, our rivers, our hiking system is second to none in, in, in Western Canada. The exact same reason people come to explore our beautiful outdoors 
is the exact same reason that Sylvester Stallone chose to shoot the film here. And that is the rivers, the backdrop, the scenery, the mountains, the ruggedness. And it was actually Sylvester Stallone that that um, that that chose to shoot the movie here. So uh, we were we were shortlisted uh, down to I, I believe ten communities in the Pacific Northwest. We always battle with Squamish with regards to movie movie work, and I believe that they were uh, one of the finalists as well. But it was Sylvester Stallone himself that chose to shoot in Hope, BC, and uh, and we've been milking it every every <laughs> you have. every. And we just had, you know, and we've just had, the, and what really makes this thing go, Simi, are the fans. The fans come into this town, and they are literally coming here from around the world for this event. And uh, it, you just get so many fans in town that are so pumped and jacked about this movie. I mean, you just can't. It, the goosebump effect is contagious. So I remember a couple of years ago when the statue was a big deal, right? When that when that went up, what kind what kind of an impact has that had? It's its own tourist attraction. I, you know, Ryan Billiards from Edmonton is one of the most talented uh, chainsaw, car- uh, chainsaw carving artists that we have that come to our community. He's a great guy. And it, it just, it went crazy. And of course, you know, Sylvester and his people got a hold of it and, and they, they posted on all their platforms and it just kind of took on its own, it took on its own sort of attraction. But, uh, you know, we, and before we go, you know, Sylvester. We get the Simi all the time. Will Sylvester Stallone be here? Will he, yeah. He, he knows about the event. His people know about the event. I have to say that they're very supportive of everything that Hope BC does. We're very fortunate to have that relationship with them. Uh, he, he Apparently, his filming schedule is in Europe, but uh, they say that things change all the time. But the invite to Sylvester Stallone to come back to our community is always there. One can only hope, right, that that would actually happen. How amazing would that be? Okay, so we're, once again, what's at the website here, Brian? Where can people get more info on this? Yeah, it's right off our platform. It's our Ramble First Blood Tourism Facebook page. All the portals are there. All the links are there. All the contacts are there. Some of the events that you do need tickets for, so pre-selling is underway. Tickets are going fast. But we want you to know that, you know what, we do this for the whole family. It's going to be for Ramble fans of all ages. And uh, so if you're a fan, like I said, if you're a fan of this movie, you're going to want to be in Hope, British Columbia this Thanksgiving weekend. No question about it. No kidding. All right, Brian, thank you. And listen, have fun with it, as you always do. All the best. All the best. That is Brian McKinney, the team lead at the Hope Cascades and Canyons Visitor Center and Museum, talking about the 40th anniversary of the release of the movie First Blood. Yes, the very first Rambo movie. It was huge. And you know what's really funny about this in terms of movie trivia and information is that apparently Sylvester Stallone thought it was going to be a total dud. So if you think back to 1982, remember really what Sylvester Stallone was best known for in that movie, in that moment, was Rocky. Rocky 1, I think Rocky 2, that would have been just before Rocky 3 came out hadn't done a whole lot of huge stuff outside of that. So he really was just known as Rocky. And so I guess he was trying to make this movie and he did an interview with Howard Stern a few years back where he talked about First Blood. He said that he literally thought, and those were his words, literally cursed is what he thought First Blood was going to be. He said there had been 17 different screenplays. He said some of them were good, that some of them were terrible, but they kept trying to get what they thought was like the right mix of everything in there and they just you know tried it over and over and over again and 
by the time the screenplay got to Sylvester Stallone and he was going to make it, they had asked pretty much every other person in Hollywood to star in this movie. According to Sylvester Stallone, he said... Robert Redford, Paul Newman, James Caan, Burt Reynolds, Robert De Niro, Al Pacino. The list went on and on of all the actors who had been offered this thing and they had turned it down. So finally, Sylvester Stallone gets to it. They think they have what they might be a workable script to there. But then he and the film's director actually had a disagreement about how the film ended. Now, I don't have to say spoiler alert to a 40-year-old movie. At least I hope I don't have to say that because we all know how the movie ends where Rambo obviously lives on to fight another day. But that was not the original ending. The original ending was that he dies at the end of First Blood. And Sylvester Stallone was absolutely adamantly opposed to that. And he was so opposed to it I guess the studio was worried that he would not finish filming the movie. They had to sue him to make sure that he stayed there to finish the movie. And he hated that ending so much that he said that uh, he made a joke about it actually making him physically sick when he saw the first kind of cut of the movie where that was the ending. He hated it. And so it turns out that eventually the studio agreed with him. They changed the ending made it more what Sylvester Stallone thought was the emotional right tone for it. And you know what? The rest is absolute history. Uh, First Blood went on to be a huge success, not just for Sylvester Stallone, but clearly for the community of Hope, where they are still having a great time. Hope Beastie celebrating the 40th anniversary of First Blood. Um, There's like, you can definitely tell it's Hope, right, when you watch that movie. So if you want to participate, as it sounds like thousands of other fans are going to, you can just check out the website there and join them, which is the Thanksgiving weekend coming up to celebrate that momentous occasion for Hope. This is Mornings with Simi. Are you ready? Is your household ready to head back to school? There's still so many questions, even though I think for the most part, a lot of parents and kids and maybe even teachers out there are feeling like this is a little bit more normal than what we have seen the last couple of years. There are still questions, right? How safe will it be? What about cold and flu season? What about the return of another wave of COVID? What about masks? Should we be doing more? These are all questions we're going to take up now with our next guest. That's Karen Kirkpatrick, who's the official opposition critic for the Ministry of Education and Child Care and the Ministry of Children and Family Development uh, with the BC Liberals. Thank you for joining us this morning. My pleasure to be here. Thanks, Simi. Have you been hearing from parents then? Do you think there are a lot of concerns about school this week? There are a lot of concerns about school. And I mean, there's concerns on, on both sides of, of issues like masking. But um, last year, when students returned and teachers returned, there was really a, a sense that there was a, there was a plan. Um, and this year, I'm hearing from teachers and from parents who are saying they feel there's not really a plan. They, that the, the Ministry of Education is saying it's really personal choice what you want to do. And that's just not good enough for a lot of parents. What do you think should have been done? <laughs> that's the million-dollar question. I think that there just needs to be more communication with families and with parents um, education with their children in terms of how to keep themselves safe, safe in a classroom, safe when they're playing. Um, that's a really important part of it. And, and masks may very well be, depending on the child and the classroom and the scenario there. But Dr. Henry has said very clearly she expects there's going to be a surge of COVID. This is going to be during the respiratory season. 
And a lot of parents um, are not going to be getting their fourth uh, vaccine until later in the fall. And that might be too late uh, in terms of being able to manage any spread within the schools. Is this a, do you think, a district by district decision? Is it up to the districts to make these calls? It's really difficult for a district to make a call that is going to be outside of what the Ministry of Education and the Ministry of Health is recommending. Um, So as far as I know, there are no uh, individual school districts that are putting in mask mandates. Uh, So at this point, again, uh, Ministry of Health and Ministry of Education are saying the two best things you can do um, well, first, it's personal choice. If, if you or, and teachers want to wear masks, that's your personal choice. And the second is to get your child vaccinated. But we know at this point that only, you know, just under half of the children between 5 and 11 have had their two vaccine doses. So you've got a lot of young people coming into the system, coming into schools this year that aren't vaccinated. Um, and there's, uh, you know, and, and the requirement for social distancing and all of those things have been dropped. So I certainly understand why parents are anxious about this feeling that there's there's not really a mm-hmm. game plan and everybody's kind of on their own. Dia, does it feel like we should be bracing ourselves at this point? I mean, everybody's heading back indoors, you know, after being outside, kind of playing all summer, confined spaces, larger groups. It, it does feel like we're going to be feeling this in about six weeks time. Uh, it certainly does feel like that. And, and again, uh, Ministry of Health is saying absolutely you're going to see a COVID-19 resurgence. Uh, so it is concerning. And if you look, uh, Cindy, at, at you know, some of these schools that still have portables, uh, Mission School District, for example, some of their schools, one of them is at 121% capacity. So you add that on top of the fact that we really need to still be mindful about social distancing and um, Uh, And having people compacted so closely together is definitely one of the factors that's going to make, uh, you know, make this spread. Um, And then the inability for some schools and definitely with respect to portables to be able to be up to that MERV uh, standard. So they've got the MERV 13 filters, which is, you know, kind of hospital grade filters. A lot of the schools don't have those. And what about the issue of masking here? I know they've said, you know, it's optional that if, if students and teachers want to wear a mask, that is entirely up to them. But do you feel, is that, is that an encouraging message? Is that a welcoming enough message for people to take that up? Uh, yes and no. When you've got young kiddos, um, you know, they want to play and they want to have that social interaction. And I think more so than in some of the older grades. It's hard for them to understand, and it's very difficult for a teacher to give direction uh, to a child to do something unless there is actually some kind of mandate around that. So I I do think it's difficult. Some kids are going to want to wear them. Some kids aren't going to want to wear them. There might be social pressure there. Uh, So I do think that's a tough way to do it. It it is like that. So, okay, so would you encourage... What would you encourage parents to do at this point? I mean, it sounds like it's just being left up to them to decide how they want to approach this. It is. I think that parents really need to be responsible in terms of educating their children uh, as to what's right for that child, what's right for that family. 
you know, based on potential health issues within the family, uh, with the children, is to help kids understand the, the benefits of wearing masks and the benefits of social distancing without causing that child additional anxiety. And, and we've seen that with some parents who are telling their kids they don't need to wear masks and it's not necessary. Well, there's a level of anxiety there. And then also you need to wear masks and there's a level of anxiety there. Can I, I'll just say one thing that I have heard, Cindy, that I think sure. is really interesting. Masks aren't perfect. Um, my child wears a mask, but masks aren't perfect. And I've heard from a number of teachers who are saying, They've seen an increase in kids acting up and having trouble interacting coming into school in those lower grades because for these last few years, they haven't had the opportunity to read facial cues. And so some of their ability to interact and to socialize has actually been impacted by the last couple of years. So that's an example of, you know, we've, we've got to be, there, there's two sides to everything and whatever we do, we've got to be mindful that it's going to have an impact. That's a really good point because then I wonder, we, we still haven't fully seen the effects of that, right? We know that for the older kids, it's, it has you know, really impacted their high school years and, and their mental health issues. But do we fully understand what has happened even with younger kids, even those that are going into school this year? Well, I, I, don't, I think we're kind of learning as we go. And I've talked to a number of teachers who have talked about this uh, phenomenon of the, of, of the younger grades having these, you know, more kind of outbursts in class. We're not really understanding this until we're seeing it happen. Um, but we do need to have more. You asked me what, what I would do. I, I, one thing I would do is make sure that we've got more mental health supports in the classrooms. Um, we, we never have enough mental health support in schools as it is, but I think right now it's particularly important to make sure that the anxiety that young people are feeling, um, there's a place to talk about it and be supported. And the same with teachers. There's a lot of anxiety with teachers, and I think they need additional support as part of the back-to-school plan. That is very true. All right. Thank you so much for your time this morning. My pleasure. You have a great day.